0: when you go through divorce, you go through shock, denial, fear, grief, anger, loneliness, unforgiveness, fear of the future, financial worries, worries about your kids. Those are universal feelings that we pretty much all go through. So just because divorce was the source of all that, that doesn't mean that you can't be a compassionate, loving, supportive person.
1: This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. Today we're talking about divorce when it hits Catholic families. The Catechism states that divorce introduces disorder into the family and society, and we're going to see how that is the case through the witness of three people who have gone through it and a priest who accompanies couples who are divorcing. I'm not going to go into how divorce affects the children of the marriage today because that's a big topic in itself. And I hope to do an episode only on that at another time. We're starting with Rose Sweet, the founder of Divorce Healing, a Catholic program for those who've gone through divorce.
0: We hear that the largest denomination in our country, I think, is ex Catholics. And when you dig deeper into that and you see why a lot of people have left the church in the last several decades, a big majority. Well, that's redundant. A majority is because of marriage and divorce issues. They didn't understand what divorce does to them, how they stand in the church or the reception of the sacraments, and they just got mad or hurt and left.
1: The divorce rate in the U.S. has been high for decades, which means that there are a lot of divorced Catholics out there. When Rose went through a divorce, she didn't find any Catholic programs to help her, but she did find a Christian one. I had been part of the
0: Protestant ministry to divorced called Divorce Care and it was very effective and in churches all over the country and it was beautifully Christ-centered but it lacked the fullness of our Catholic teaching and healing. So I I just simply followed their model that that worked and uh, came up with the Surviving Divorce Program which is in, you know, 16 countries now and uh, hundreds of Catholic
1: parishes around the country. Before we go into how the church can minister better to divorced people, We're going to hear more of her personal story.
0: By the time I was in my early 30s, I had experienced several failed marriages. They were short, and it was me just trying desperately to find some level of happiness.
1: Rose got married the first time at a very young age.
0: The first one, I was very young. It was just to get out of the house. And I was only married nine months. But I gave it my all, and I I wanted to be there for life, and I wanted to have kids. But I was young and dumb and stupid, and I really didn't seek any wise counsel. And I married an alcoholic who, months into the attempted marriage, started beating me.
1: Rose knew that this was not okay, and she called home. Her family helped her to leave and get a divorce and an annulment.
0: In shock, I didn't get help, I didn't get counseling. I quickly looked around for the next possible husband because I decided that a husband, home, and kids would make me ultimately happy. And I started praying that God would bring me that. And after that prayer, I got up and did it all on my own. And I made a huge, huge mess of things.
1: Rose wanted a husband, home, and children. So it made sense to her to find another husband right away. The problem is not the desire.
0: The problem is the disordered way we go about to satisfy the desire.
1: Her sisters were all having kids, her friends too, so Rose wanted to catch up.
0: I was the one who left the first one and the next one I was left. So I've been on both sides and without going into a lot of detail, it really wasn't until the third time when I thought, holy moly, what am I doing wrong? I can't keep blaming these guys. I can't keep saying, well, they, they weren't good or they didn't know what they were doing. Why was I picking them?
1: Rose finally got off the merry-go-round. She turned to Jesus and sought to change the way that she was living.
0: When those attempts at marriage were over, I entered an almost 20-year period of being by myself and trying to walk with the Lord, trying to hear His voice, asking for the grace, to go deeper with Him, to be more intimate, um, to look at my own stinky stuff. And they were beautiful years. And I discovered the truth of who
1: I am as a woman and God's plan for marriage. This is hard work, dealing with your wounds, sins, insecurities, and failings. The last thing you need at this moment is a place where your failure is used against you.
0: I have been so shocked and saddened in the many years in ministering to separate and divorced Catholics at the judgment and the criticism and sometimes even the arrogance of people who've never experienced divorce and look down their noses at their fellow Catholics and are telling them what they, do, what they did wrong, what they should have done, how they should react and respond. It's just, it's horrible and not productive and it puts salt into the wounds.
1: Rose was active at her parish. She was a lector. And as you can probably tell, she's an outgoing, warm person.
0: And when my husband left, All the women stopped talking to me and I got kicked off a bunch of committees and I wasn't invited anywhere anymore. And and the place where I thought maybe I could get some comfort and understanding at the church, my fellow Catholic women, are you kidding me? They were some of the harshest critics. They didn't know me. They didn't really understand, but they judged me anyways.
1: Rose begs you listeners not to jump to conclusions about your divorced brothers and sisters in Christ.
0: If you're a Catholic and you've never experienced divorce, please don't sit in judgment. You know that there's so much that goes on behind closed doors in every marriage, and the faith that we put on to the public and even to Father in the confessional and even to God himself can hide things, deep pains, deep childhood wounds, addictions, horrible things. And instead of judging, please Please just open your heart. Ask God, how can I help this person? How can I listen to their story? Because you know what? When you sit down and listen to somebody's story, you might get some information you never even knew, and you're, you'll change your whole mind.
1: We never know all that is going on in another person's marriage and family life. On the one hand, that's appropriate. On the other, it can mean that you have a false picture of what is going on, such that, for example, you don't know that Rose's husband hits her.
0: I do think people who are judgmental and critical are afraid that it might happen to them or would never think that it would happen to them or are very proud that it would never happen to them. And that goes before the fall, always pride, pride, pride. We all struggle with pride.
1: People going through a divorce can feel devastatingly alone. They know that people love them, but they just feel like there's nothing anyone can do. I remember one Christmas,
0: my husband left right before the holidays I didn't put
1: up one decoration,
0: and for the first time in my whole life, I never got a tree. I just stayed in my house, and I cocooned. I was in such pain. I had one girlfriend who I let come in the house and bring me food, and that was about it. I didn't even want to talk to her. I was in so much pain. I couldn't function. There is a day when you get out of bed, and you begin to wash your face and feel that life is going to go on. But, you know, you can be in that horrible, isolated cocoon stage for a long time. And that's not necessarily bad. Some people need that for
1: healing. Rose's advice to friends and family of people going through divorce is to ask them a simple question. What can I do for you? The answer may be nothing, but he or she knows that you're there. And if you want to help more broadly, maybe you're called to start a ministry at your parish or in your diocese.
0: If you're listening and you think you would like to help your parish start a divorce ministry, It's possible. You don't have to be divorced even to run this ministry. Around the country, we have hundreds of facilitators of our program who are deacons who've never experienced divorce, deacons and their wives as teens. We have some religious sisters. We have a handful of priests who, by the way, all of them are adult children of divorce, and they understand this. And we have single people running
1: the program. And Rose also encourages divorced people to learn about the annulment process.
0: The tribunals have good and wise people to help you take a good look at what happened when you got married and what was going on. And if there are grounds for annulment, they will help you get those out and present them in a case. Over the years that I've done this work for people, I would say 90, in the high 90s, percent come back and say, that was gruesome, but it was healing and freeing. And I'm so thankful for the church because the truth... No matter what it is, it will set us free.
1: Next, we're going to hear from a man who went through a divorce. Like Rose, his divorce was many years ago.
2: Okay, well, so my name is Brad Gray. I am the director of marriage and family life for the Diocese of Fargo.
1: I met Brad at a Catholic conference, and to look at him, you'd think he was just a happy-go-lucky Midwest married guy with five kids and no drama. He's a family life minister and fired up about the church's vision for love. But there's more to his story.
2: So Molly and I were uh, married at a very young age. I was 20, she was 19.
1: Brad and Molly grew up in the same small town and started dating the year Brad started college. Brad was baptized Catholic, but not practicing.
2: I had been a child of the grunge era, a big devotee of bands like Nirvana and Stone Temple Pilots, Nine Inch Nails and and the like. And one of the kind of defining characteristics of that is just this sort of angst, this meaninglessness of life. And uh, as I began spending more and more time with Molly and began going more and more into prayer, into the rosary and that sort of thing, I began to see a real depth of meaning. All of a sudden, that was exciting.
1: They dated for only seven months before getting engaged and married six months after that.
2: We entered into our relationship, into our marriage, both kind of from a standpoint of need. Me uh, needing to be loved, to have purpose. Her um, really kind of with a, a purpose and a utility toward being a mom, having a baby. When we took our premarriage inventory, the priest who was doing our preparation said basically that we had the highest degree of agreement um, that he had ever seen. But part of the reality here was that I, like I said, I was kind of coming from a, a very needy place in my own emotional life when Molly and I started dating. And I knew what she was looking for. I knew what the right answers were. The one thing that I put that was the one red flag that showed up on our pre-marriage inventory was in-law issues. And when I was confronted about that by our, our, I believe it was a deacon who was preparing us, and he asked me about that when I was there with Molly, I said, well, you know, it's just that her mom's always right on everything, and it's hard to accept that she's got someone who's always right. kind of brushed it aside and, and basically said, it's just that I'm still kind of learning things here, and she's been a Catholic for all this time, and so that's just a difficult thing to swallow my pride. So that was certainly a red flag that that showed up, but it wasn't one that I really gave the credibility to.
1: It turned out the in-law issue was not a small issue. One month after their marriage, Molly was pregnant, and Brad noticed that she called her mom all the time, like three times a day, and that her mom seemed to have an outsized role in decisions about the family.
2: If we weren't already on the same page to start off with, it's just like we couldn't get there. It would often evolve into arguments, whether it be yelling, it be name-calling, um, just a general lack of respect one way or another. But at the same time, that, those were moments, and they punctuated what was often other times kind of a very excited and romantic type of relationship. It was a little bit of a Jekyll and Hyde type of marriage that we had.
1: But Brad figured, hey, all couples have disagreements, right? They got pregnant again, and soon were the proud parents of two little girls. Brad was looking forward to taking the kids over to see his parents' new house.
2: We started to have an argument that morning before we were gonna head over. Molly had asked that we leave the kids with her family, uh, or at least one of the kids, because she didn't feel like anyone else took care of the kids, no one else watched them well enough uh, other than her and her mom. She couldn't watch both of them at the same time, and my parents now had also moved on a lake, and she was concerned that they were gonna go down the hill and go drown in the lake.
1: From the other room, Molly's mother chimed in saying that she just heard a story of that very thing happening, a toddler drowning in a lake.
2: And it just, it it set me off, so that I went out to her mother and said, you know what, when we want your advice, we'll ask for it. And um, I really do think that was kind of the death knell to our marriage.
1: Brad and Molly had reached an impasse in their marriage. After a heated discussion three or four days after that incident, Brad left the house to pray, and when he came home, he stayed on the couch.
2: When I woke up the next morning, I saw a note on the table that said, Brad, we've, we've gone away. We'll talk tomorrow before we go to your parents' house. And that was the last time I heard from her for five years.
1: In order to see his kids, Brad had to find a friend willing to arrange it with Molly and be the go-between and the supervisor for three hours. This went on for nine months.
2: I got a lawyer and I petitioned to have my legal parenting rights established, and I sent her a letter uh, at that same time saying I, I am not attacking you in any way. I would still hope that you know, we can reconcile things. I love you and I, I think you're a wonderful person, but I need to be able to be a dad for our children. And the response was that within a week she had filed for divorce.
1: Brad was lost. He really didn't think this was going to happen. How could two practicing Catholics end up divorced?
2: I was just so perplexed for years because of the often quoted statement about how a family that prays together stays together. My parents had that, had a bumper sticker that kind of tucked into one of their kitchen cabinets as I was growing up. I saw it my whole life. And I would look at that then after I got divorced and said, We did that. We did pray together. I, I did not think divorce was even a possibility for us. I had never heard of two practicing Catholics that had gotten divorced.
1: And maybe that's what other people think when they look at a divorced person. Oh, they must not have been praying. It's not true, y'all.
2: I have to say that I, I had a very derogatory, snooty look on those who got divorced. I just figured, you know, people that got divorced just didn't try hard enough. They kind of threw in the towel too quickly until all of a sudden I found myself in that same situation.
1: Brad's divorce lawyer told him that in 28 years of practicing, he'd never seen someone try so hard to save his marriage.
2: When I first found myself in this situation, my my first inclination was to turn to God. And, And it was something that I did daily and consistently. I felt like Jesus was saying to me, I have something so beautiful to give you, but you can't handle it right now. If I give it to you now, you'll just lose it. I have to remake you first. And so that became kind of this mantra for me and began to make me open to his movement, to what he was doing, to how he was at work.
1: When Molly first left, Brad felt God tell him that things would be resolved by the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, September 14th. When that didn't happen, he told his spiritual director his disappointment. The priest replied, Maybe not this year.
2: Our annulment was granted on September thirteenth, three years after. It was it was a shocking thing to me because I remember distinctly the words that I felt like I had received were this will be resolved by the triumph of the cross. Of course I took that to mean our marriage is going to be healed. Mom's going to be back with me, the family will be reunited. But in fact, it was resolved the day before the triumph of the cross three years later.
1: The marriage was over, but of course, some kind of relationship remains because of the children.
2: I'm eternally grateful. My relationship with her, our children that have come out of that marriage are absolutely wonderful young women. I admire that I look up to as uh, women of God.
1: After some time had passed, Brad married Lisa.
2: So when I entered into my marriage, my (laughs) valid marriage with my wife, Lisa, I had really been remade in many ways, but at the same time, there's a lot of woundedness, a lot of baggage that goes along with a failed marriage.
1: He asks Catholics not to stand apart from people who are divorced.
2: I know I've heard of situations too where people kind of just avoid someone because they don't know what to say. And sometimes that can be as hurtful as saying the wrong thing. There definitely was a feeling that I had in one of the particular parishes in town where it's like you kind of have a feeling you're a leper. What are people thinking of me?
1: Our next witness is a young woman whose divorce is more recent. My name is uh, Patty Breen. I'm a pastoral associate, so I
3: do work with like baptism prep, marriage prep. We're starting a divorce recovery group, women's
1: ministry, more adult faith formation. Like Rose, when Patty went through her divorce, she did not find any Catholic support groups in her area. So later, when she started to work at a church, she told the pastor that she wanted to start one, and she used Rose's materials. I think we just struggled to have messy pastoral conversations
3: around this topic well. And if we want to be the church Jesus wants us to be, we have to be more comfortable and be more willing to walk with people in those situations because the divorce rate of Catholics is really no different than the larger secular population. And so we just need to be better equipped to help you know our brothers and sisters who go through that.
1: Conversations about divorce in the church are messy because human relationships often are, and the church has to maintain and search for the truth at all times. If a couple is married in the church, that marriage is presumed valid and thus indissoluble. It's for life. You promised that to God, and he promised to make it possible. So how do you process a marriage that is breaking down? Is it just a bump on the road? Or was there always something missing?
3: One thing I would like to bring to people's awareness is that it's really easy to say, you would never do something until you find yourself in that situation. So, for example, I can remember, I blush thinking I used to think this, but I remember thinking only mediocre Christians or mediocre Catholics get a divorce. I'll never be that person. Well, (laughs) here I am that person. So it's funny how life experiences open your eyes and give you greater compassion for the pain and the brokenness or the suffering that other people face, if it's even if it's different from yours, because you realize you would never want to be judged or treated a certain way.
1: Patty was 26 when she married her husband. We'll call him Jeff. Seven
3: months after I got married, I found out the man I married was a sex addict. So by our first year anniversary, we were in couples counseling, and we were both seeing an individual counselor weekly.
1: Jeff was addicted to pornography, something he never shared with Patty, and that she had been perhaps too naive to ask specifically. During the rest of their marriage, Patty worked on a workbook for partners dealing with the trauma of sex addiction and was crying every day for most of that year. So the process I came to
3: in the decision that I needed to leave was obviously
1: not a light one.
3: And I remember having many conversations with one of my friends who was a priest, and my sister. I wanted someone to tell me, It was okay to leave. Like I wanted someone to say, get the heck out of there. This isn't good for you. But you, it can't work that way. You have to make those decisions freely. Every day I would just like talk to the Holy Spirit and I would just beg him to make it so clear to me that I wouldn't doubt it, even in the midst of pain or sadness of a marriage ending, that I would still have peace. I prayed that for a long time. And then one night I was at home and my former husband was getting upset about something I had accidentally thrown out of the fridge, and he was starting to get angry and say some not kind things to me, and I was sitting in the living room, just I had tears running down my face, eating a bowl of chili, and I just had this sense of God. It's so hard to describe, and it sometimes sounds hokey to people when they say they hear God speak to them, but it was just like the presence of God, and I had this sense of it's okay to say you're done. It's okay to say you can't do this anymore. I'm not disappointed in you. And I felt a lot of freedom in that. And so I explored that more, what that meant, what I thought that meant with my counselor and other priests that I talked to. And then I just slowly started the process of moving out and filing. It was time for Patty to let go. Going through a divorce has been the most painful thing of my most painful experience of my life but I have never felt more close to the Lord 100%. That doesn't mean it's been easy. And it just catches you off guard sometimes. I mean, grief is a a strange, messy thing, and leaving a marriage is is not something to be taken lightly. As I was driving home, I passed all of these locations, places that I had memories with my former husband, and it was just I remember just like ripping the steering wheel so tight my knuckles were white and I was just sobbing and crying. Just the memories of doing things together or oh this is where we used to go swing dancing or things like that. It's just one of the worst days I can viscerally remember. I think people who who go through a divorce definitely have experiences where they're you know those really bad days where the memories come up or the triggers and you just have to find ways to kind of manage them and get
1: through them in healthy ways. One of the things that helped Patty through her grief was what she calls her daily gratefuls. I would set a timer for 10 minutes every day,
3: and I had a journal, and I would just start writing down all these things I was grateful for in the present day. And there were many days where I would repeat the same thing, like, I'm grateful I woke up, I'm grateful for hot coffee. But it really helped me shift my perspective that even in the midst of this really traumatic, painful situation, There is truly something always to be grateful for, and God's present, even in the really messy, icky, broken stuff.
1: She would do this sometimes 10 times a day, and it became second nature. She also found a new saint friend. So yeah, Max, he's my bestie. (laughs) St. Maximilian Kolbe is the patron saint for those who experience addictions, particularly sex addiction. Patty did novenas to him and really talked to him all the time about her husband. In 2016. When she was in Poland for World Youth Day, Patty went to Auschwitz. Seeing where St. Max
3: died was really important to me because he walked me through the most painful time of my life. And so we got to cell block 11, where the starvation bunker was, where he was martyred. And um, I walked up and I put my hand on the outside and I just bowed my head and I closed my eyes. And I just started weeping and weeping. And... um I I gave my former husband back to St. Max, and I said, Max, you take him. I am no longer responsible for him spiritually or emotionally. I prayed for forgiveness for what I faced when I was married, but I also prayed that my heart wouldn't be bitter or resentful. Um, I prayed for the man I would someday meet and hopefully marry, that I would learn to trust again. I mean, I was just... uh, I was just talking. It was
1: me, Jesus, and Max, you know, hanging out in Auschwitz. Patty entrusted Jeff's future to St. Maximilian Kolbe and let go of her responsibility for him. And I opened my eyes, and it wasn't like, you know, everything
3: was perfect after then, but it was just like one of those experiences I'll always look back on my life and think, God, you were there with me, and you heard me, and you saw me, and... It was just such a powerful reminder that you're with us in our suffering, that you know what it is, Jesus, to suffer. And so you who know what it is
1: to suffer, absolutely do not abandon us in our suffering and our pain. Patty began again. She has her own apartment and feels like she's in a healthy place. She and a friend put together a workshop for the Archdiocese called Whispered in the Dark, What to Do When the Man You Love is Addicted to Porn. Don't worry, y'all. An episode all about pornography is in the works. So as I said before, Patty started helping with divorce ministry as well. And one simple idea for you listeners is for your parish to host a talk or a question and answer session on annulments. The parish I work at, we did that this
3: past April, and we had over 50 people come, 50 adults come from around our vicariate, just looking to ask questions and really learn about what the annulment process is. These sessions can also dispel some of the misconceptions about divorce. Sometimes people think you can't receive the sacraments if you're divorced, and that's
1: not true. Like, you should run to the sacraments. But Patty also thinks our churches can be more welcoming in a simple way. I think a better way we can minister to divorced Catholics
3: is, even in just little ways like how we speak or talk, you know, even in things like preaching or homilies, not always assuming that everyone is married, that there are single parents in the church, that there are families that are broken by divorce that come to church still. So even in little things in how we talk. And when someone you know is going through a divorce. Not waiting for them to call you or to initiate getting together. Because I remember feeling like sometimes I don't want to be a bother. I don't want to be a bother to my family. I don't want to be a bother to my friends. And life goes on and their lives go on even as you're trying to figure out how to manage this new state in life. So for people who have family members or friends going through a divorce, reach out to them intentionally. You make the effort and say, hey, we're going to coffee on this Saturday at this time. I'm going to meet you there. Will you meet me there? Things like that because it takes some of that pressure off of them because I didn't want to be a bother to people just listening is so good don't feel like you have to fix it sometimes people just need to be listened to and even if you don't know what to say the best thing to say is I'm so sorry you're going through this I can't imagine the pain and the hurt you must feel but I want to walk alongside you and I'm here for you and I love you and I want to listen to what you're going through those kind of things were really helpful for me
1: We're going to end with a priest who has experience accompanying divorced people.
4: Hello, my name is Father Steve Porter. I'm a priest of the Diocese of San Bernardino in California. I've been a pastor for about 30 years, and now I'm in kind of semi-retirement. I'm an assistant priest in a parish, and this is, I'm finding, giving me a lot of opportunity to develop some ministries which have always been important to me but never have I really had the time to develop them? And one of them is ministry to the divorced people. And the best way in homilies, in bulletin articles, in announcements at the end of Mass, is to just be open and say, hey, we've got this new ministry. If you've been divorced for any reasons whatsoever, it doesn't matter the reasons, you're welcome. You're absolutely welcome. We want to minister to you. And I think that's one of the things that the church has to do a better job of, is making it clear to people that there's no judgment here. We're sad for a divorce. Every divorce is sad, but there's no judgment, and you're welcome.
1: Father Porter points out that divorce is usually initiated by one person, not both.
4: One person initiates it, and the other person is often, oh my gosh, where did this come from? Is it this? came out of left field, I thought we had such a good marriage, I didn't realize that there was that kind of attitude with many people, and it's very important not to be judgmental of either the person who has initiated the divorce, or the person who has been divorced, and not, and I've heard priests say this, and this is so sad to repeat this, I've heard priests say, well, you know, you must have had something to do with the divorce, you know, but, Father, I didn't know anything about it at all. Well, no. You know what I'm talking about. It's, it's misunderstanding, misunderstanding of what happens in the divorce and misunderstanding of the people.
1: Father Porter finds that many divorced people feel that the church abandoned them.
4: One of the common things that comes to me through all the sadnesses of the divorce, stories that I've heard from different people, is that they felt the church let them down. They felt the church abandoned them to the divorce. Sometimes they were told that. And sometimes they weren't told that. They just thought it. They just came to that conclusion themselves. And that's, you know, bad catechesis back in the day earlier on, perhaps. Uh, but, you know, you don't tend to talk about divorce until someone is divorced. So how do you tell a happily married couple, you know what, by the way, if you get divorced, Uh, We still love you and we still want you. You know, that's not the conversation that we have. Maybe we should have it, but we don't have it because we're glad that the marriage is good and healthy and going forward unless and until something does go wrong. But then we need to step in straight away and say, you know what, God loves you and I love you as well.
1: There's also anger.
4: Sometimes anger, especially with the party who maybe is not directly responsible for the divorce. Sometimes it's, there's been infidelity on the part of the other party, and the wronged, the aggrieved party has, why did this happen? Why did God let my spouse go off and behave inappropriately with that other person? You know, we got married in the church. We got the sacrament of marriage. Uh, we've been going to Mass every Sunday. We go to conf- confession once a month. You know, the anger that sometimes comes when you feel that whatever you've been doing, religiously, spiritually, in the church, your relationship with God, doesn't work. Because if it worked, why would I have a divorce? Why am I getting divorced? Why why did this happen?
1: Sometimes both people in the marriage come to Father Porter for advice. The kids, too. Sometimes it's clearly a sacramental marriage.
4: The one thing I fight against is, well, maybe this is God's will. No, it's never God's will to break a marriage up. That's very certain. It's never God's will that a sacramental marriage should be broken up. Never, never, never. It's happened, and that's because, once again, of the power of the evil in the world. And so, therefore, to teach people that it's not God's will that your marriage is broken up. But even out of this situation, God can bring good. Let's try and find where that good is. Uh, where is that good in you? Where is that good in your, your spouse or your ex-spouse? Uh, where is that good in your children, in your family life? Where is it? Let's find it because if we look for it, and we look for it with prayer, we look for it sometimes with sacrifice, and with suffering because there's certainly suffering there in, in any divorce, in every divorce. Um, if we look for it, God will help us to find it, and then God will bless us in finding that good that may be there uh, lurking under the surface.
1: Father Porter says that divorce is similar to death in that there is a grieving process that people have to go through.
4: And one of the ways I I encourage people in in funerals and in bereavement situations is to talk about it. Talk about the person who has died. and, and, And the same thing in a divorced marriage situation. Talk about the situation, to get it out of you, you know, not bottle it up inside you. And, and one of the things I say to people is, you know, if you start crying, that's a righteous cry. But carry on talking. Don't bottle it up. Let it out. So that you can begin to heal. Because the tears are a very powerful healing agent. St. Ignatius of Loyola says that when we have no more words to speak, our tears are our prayers. And sometimes for someone who's lost a loved one or someone who's uh, through death, that is to say, or lost a loved one through divorce, the only only prayers you can make are tears and let them be your prayers while you're crying.
1: And Father Porter refers people to counselling as well.
4: Bottom line is, whatever helps you to heal is good. Because healing is what we're looking for after a divorce.
1: Healing is what we're looking for. So much of the Christian life can be summed up in that sentence. The Sacrament of Reconciliation is a key place where Catholics receive both forgiveness and healing. I hope that it's a place that helps divorced Catholics on the journey, and for the rest of us, a reminder to extend mercy ourselves. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor.
4: Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks, everyone.